Welcome, I'm Ken Shropshire, CEO of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Thank you for tuning in to today's discussion, how have women's sports changed since Title IX? We're honored to partner with Sokolo Public Square on this conversation. Our mission at the Global Sport Institute is to conduct, translate, and deliver impactful sports information and to educate those involved in sport. At the Institute, our research and programming focuses on examining critical issues of access and opportunity for those in sport, from the athlete to the coach to the front office. We believe that sport can be utilized to create positive impact in the world. I invite you to follow the breadth of our work at globalsport.asu.edu. Coinciding with today's conversation, we also invite you to read the June digital issue from our media platform, Global Sport Matters. We're examining the spectra of gender and more with written stories, podcasts, and virtual conversations. You can check out the issue titled Beyond the Binary in Sport right now on globalsportmatters.com. Thank you again for joining us in this important conversation. And now I'd like to introduce Moira Shuri from Sokolo Public Square. Thank you, Ken. And hello, everyone. I'm Moira Shuri. Welcome to Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events just like this one. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. We are fortunate to have Lindsay Gibbs moderating today's panel. Lindsay is the founder of Power Plays and co-host of the podcast, Burn It All Down. Lindsay's reporting has covered the WNBA, the world of tennis, the Sochi Olympics, NASCAR, golf, the advancement of LGBTQ rights, and also the implementation of Title IX in sports. This is an incredible panel, and we're so pleased to be presenting it to you today. Over to you, Lindsay. Thank you, Ken, and thank you, Maura. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, how have women's sports changed since Title IX? And thank you to the Zocola Public Square and ASU Global Sport Institute for presenting our conversation. My name is Lindsay Gibbs and I am so thrilled to introduce tonight's panelists. It is an all-star crew. We have Victoria Jackson, a sports historian and clinical assistant professor of history at Arizona State University. She has written for the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, Slate, and many other publications. She is also a former professional elite runner and 10,000 meter NCAA champion runner. And she's now writing a book on privilege and power in American big time college sports that I cannot wait to read. <laughs> I'm putting that on my reading list. We then have Amy Alcott, a professional golfer and golf course designer who made her LPGA Tour de debut in 1975 at the age of 18. She's the winner of five major championships and 29 LPGA Tour events and is a member of the World Golf and LPGA Hall of Fame. And then the great Jill Pilgrim, a sports attorney and principal owner of the Pilgrim Pilgrim and Associates Arbitration, Law and Mediation. I will not say that a few times fast. <laughs> she was the former general counsel of the LPGA and USA Track and Field and is a member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Jill is also a lecturer at Columbia Law School. Thank you all so much for being here. Terrific. So 49... 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a little nervous. So 49 years ago today, it's the anniversary. Uh, there were, a, you know, less than 50 words were written that changed the course of women's sports forever. Uh, this is this is what Title IX said. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Um, a lot of people don't know that Title IX doesn't even mention the word sports <laughs> in its uh, language, and yet it's a law that has become synonymous with women's sports. Just you know, to get to know you all a little bit better and to kind of set the stage, I'd love to know, you know, where either where you were in your in your professional career when Title IX came about or how it impacted you when you were all entering the sports space, because I know you're all athletes. Um, Amy, I've got to start with the Hall of Famer. So <laughs> I'll start with you. Well, it wasn't always like that. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Title IX, I graduated high school in 1974. Um, and I was, uh, my golf teacher said, Amy, you're a little racehorse. You need to go out in the world of professional golf. And I had an equal amount of people tell me, Amy, you have to go get a college education because you're too young. And at that time I reached out and here I had uh, a even a, a very nice amateur pedigree at that time. I won you know, the California State Amateur and I was a top player and I reached out and I only had two college scholarship offers living in Los Angeles. One was to go to Furman University, uh, which I hadn't even heard of. And one was to go to Dartmouth and play on the men's golf team. And I thought, God, you know, um, uh, that was a, a very, very limited. And so uh, I chose professional golf. I went out on the tour in 1975. Uh, but as the few years went by, I would see more and more young players coming out on the tour that had gone to college for four or five years and had a, um, a wonderful opportunity to uh, go to various colleges because Title IX kind of came more into, into focus on things. So um, I, uh, I was aware of it, but I, as time went on, I learned more about it. Incredible. Jill? So I graduated high school in 1976 in New York City, but I had spent the six years before that going to school in Canada. I knew nothing about Title IX, um, and uh, I had been a, an accomplished runner as a junior athlete um, coming up through high school, and I had won a, national a junior national championships in Canada. Um, I was very focused on my track and field. Um, my parents were not. My parents were very focused on my academics. So what I do know is that um, some letters did come to my home offering track and field scholarships, uh, but my mother's uh, dictate was, you're going Ivy League, and she promptly threw those letters out. I arrived at Princeton, um, I think uh, the first women at Princeton had been admitted four years before I got there. Princeton had no, in 1976, had no women's track club team, um, 
and no coach, no budget, no anything. So uh, Title IX existed. Uh, what I didn't understand is that my track coach in New York had spoken to the track coach, at, the men's track coach at Princeton, and they wanted to jumpstart a women's track and field team, presumably because of Title IX and the admission of women to Princeton finally. So uh, what they did is they wanted to get some really good athletes there so that there would be no discussion about the need for it. So um, I was blissfully unaware of Title IX when I uh, went into, uh, entered Princeton University. Wow. Victoria? Yeah, um, I mean, I attended high school in a Title IX bubble. Um, I was privileged to start high school coming off the Atlanta 96 game. You know, so a U.S. hosted Olympics with new events in track and field added to the Olympic program in that year. Um, like the women's uh, 5,000 was added in that year, for example. Um, and then, you know, summer heading into my senior year of high school, we hosted the Women's World Cup in the United States. And I went to a high school that had a woman athletic director. And, you know, I, I didn't think about it at the time. I just thought every school was like my school. But reflecting back on it, she baked gender equity into everything we did. The, I played multiple sports and we would rotate who got the best courts and the best fields in an equitable manner for practice during the week, competition times. I worked for my athletic department in the summers and was in the equipment room and the, the boys and girls had the same equipment. I cleaned the locker rooms. The locker rooms were the exact same too. Um, and then I, you know, was in this high watermark, I would say of cultural support around girls and women in sport. And also a time when the economy was good and colleges add teams when the economy is good. Um, and, you know, when you're a teenager, you're oblivious to all this stuff. And I was in the, the, segregated suburbs of Chicago in a public school with lots of resources. And I was just living it up and living large. And only at college, when I started studying these things, did I realize what a bubble and what a unique moment in time that was, those, the, you know, the 1990s in the United States. That's remarkable. Um, I just love hearing the history. It's, it's just so rare that a law just has this such a broad impact. Um, I think today we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the professional landscape for women's sports and how that's changed, um, the positives that we've seen, why change has been still super slow. I want to start out by making sure we acknowledge the, I would say, downsides or the unintended consequences of Title IX, um, which uh, have of course been in a few areas, the loss of women in coaching. Um, the when Title IX was enacted, most athletic departments were run by women, for the women. Uh, they were kind of siloed um, and most of coaches, but 90% of coaches of women's teams were women. And uh, since Title IX, that percentage has gone significantly down. And it's, um, we haven't seen the same amount of growth <laughs> uh, of women coaching on the men's side to kind of make up for it and even things out. I'll start with you, Jill. 
uh, for this one. Do you think that these unintended consequences, that there was any way to design the system so that it didn't happen, so that these uh, inequities weren't baked into Title IX? Um, or do you just think that's, you know, just kind of the way, uh, you know, the way it is and you adapt from there? Well, I, I don't think it would have been possible to write it into the federal law. Um, you know, maybe the guidance, the regulations that came out. Um, I, I don't think that America was that advanced at that time on gender issues, for sure. But I guess I could say that I contributed to the problem because while I indicated that Princeton didn't have a women's track team when I joined, the plan was to have one. And I sat on the search committee to hire the first coach, track and field coach um, for the women's team at Princeton. And we <laughs> selected a male who ended up coaching at Princeton for over 39 years. Peter Farrell is a great coach. Um, uh, of course, as time, as time went on, uh, there were assistant coaches hired. Um, uh, after I graduated, they, they had uh, more women as assistant coaches and women of color and, and that sort of thing. But literally, um, when I started uh, where there was no official team, we had other male um, students helping coach the team. My club uh, uh, track coach in New York was a male. Um, my club track coach in Canada was a female. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you could have written that in. I think that as an athlete, I always want the best coach possible. Um, and I think um, most people, as you indicated at the beginning, that, that there's no mention of sports in Title IX, most people don't know that Title IX was more focused on uh, professors, right? The hiring of professors, um, um, that there were not enough female uh, professors being hired. So it doesn't seem implausible or surprising that that same issue uh, also existed uh, with the hiring of coaches and the athletic department. Um, we, we still live in, uh, maybe a little less so now, 49 years later, but a very male-centric, uh, male-dominated American society. So that doesn't surprise me. And um, I don't know that you can mandate the hiring, you have to be very intentional if you want to change. Uh, that's the same with racial issues, social justice issues. You have to recognize the problem and then be willing to take the steps to change it. But um, I guess I have to confess that I contributed to that because when we were hiring Peter Farrell, we had the option to also hire a black female coach. And I can't tell you my thinking at the time, even though I will say it was very much influenced by my, my club coach in New York, um, but there was a whole committee voting on it. So there was a woman in the mix, she just didn't get hired. 
Wow. That's fascinating. I need to apologize for my glow. I've never done a zoom during this time period before, and I'm on the East coast. So the sun is setting like right outside my window. And, um, that's why I'm pink right now, but hopefully I will be, uh, back to normal. The light lighting's going to just change me throughout this. I need blackout blinds. Um, Victoria, I want to go to you. I know you working so much within administrations, uh, in the university, do you have any ideas about how to address the issue of uh, the lack of women coaching or the lower percentage of women coaching in, in uh, women's sports? And are there any, any other you know, unintended consequences of Title IX that come to mind that you think are important to address? Yeah, you know, um, Title IX doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in context. And that context is what I like to call a list of American exceptionalisms that just are these really weird, quirky historical forces that kind of crash into each other and get us where we are right now. So the first is that we're really the only place in the world that has elite sport development in schools. We're the only place in the world that has a gender equity, like in education law coupled with elite sport development in schools. We're the only place in the world with a multi-billion dollar sports industry in schools predicated on this idea, this con, this fraud of amateurism, right? So that there's all this money that can't go to the athletes that are making it. And then the last one is kind of quirky too. We're the only place in the world where soccer evolves into American football on college campuses. So I think that the way to explain these unintended consequences of Title IX is to not bl blame Title IX, but to place Title IX in these contexts. And the fact that we have all of this money in intercollegiate athletics, which is a male space for 70 years, and it's built up around football, this manly sport, the sport in which Americans prove their manliness. And then you have women kind of doing their own thing in physical education. Um, and this, by the way, is on the campuses of predominantly white institutions. HBCUs are much more advanced in their sports development and gender equity before the passage of Title IX. It's why yeah. people like um, Wyoming Atias called Ed Temple, the head coach at Tennessee State, Title VIII, <laughs> because they were coming up with ways to subsidize, especially track and field athletes at HBCUs to pay for college. Um, so what happens in this context is the men who realize, you know what, that head coach, he's never going to retire. And I'm frustrated being an assistant coach. And I don't want to make my family move around the country anymore, chasing head coaching jobs. But the head softball coaching position just opened up. You know what? I'm going to coach the women. And oh, it turns out it's a good payday too. I'm going to make more head coaching softball at my institution than I was as an assistant coaching baseball so you see this dramatic shift of men applying for and getting head coaching jobs because who's an authority figure in the history of modern sport? It's men, right? So athletic directors, since women's sports have been moved over to the athletic department from where they had been in women's physical education departments, now the boss is a male athletic director who hires what he knows to be a leader of teams and that's other men. So we have this dramatic change where we go from 90% to about 40 to 45%, and then it just stagnates there. 
And that's Dr. Nicole Lavoie's term, this kind of stagnation of women representing about 40 to 45% of head coaches of women's teams. But if we're thinking about it in the way, Lindsay, you had mentioned earlier, it's actually a much smaller percentage because we were talking about women coaching both men's and women's teams and men coaching both men's and women's teams. So that that percentage is even kind of artificially inflated if we're only looking at women coaching women's teams. Yeah, that's what I would say. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the best coach theory, but it's got to work on both sides <laughs> of the coin if we're going to, you know, really be doing that. Uh, Amy, I'll go to you now. Um, I know golf is so interesting because it was a rare sport that already had a pro tour, right? As Title IX for women, as Title IX was um, kind of developing and going up the ranks. But, um, did you see it have any impact on who you saw playing the game, on who you saw coaching the game? Um, and yeah, I guess I'll just kind of start yeah. there. Well, you know, the LPGA tour was started back in the 50s. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I idolized people that there were very few, you know, very visible women's golf really was on TV. It was always you were watching men play golf. Uh, but I remember my father taking me here in Los Angeles to watch the lady pros when I was just a junior golfer, you know, and I got to see, you know, some of the great women players. I got to see Kathy Whitworth. I got to see Al uh, Althea Gibson. I got to see, you know, a lot of people from a distance. And, um, you know, so I knew that this entity, this women's professional golf existed. And what I've come to learn through players of another generation of from the founders of the LPGA, the, the founding group, uh, especially a, 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 a real character named Shirley Spork. Um, you know, the genesis of how a tour like this started when I was, before I was born. Um, and, uh, you know, women writing their own, you know, setting up their own golf courses, driving from tournament to tournament in cars, um, putting stakes in the ground to keep the gallery out. They actually ran their own tour. But when the tournament was over, they'd write their own check, to, their own checks for $52 for that week or whatever it was. And so, you know, my hat goes off to really the history of the LPGA tour. Um, and it gave, gave me this wonderful platform to an arena to showcase my talent when I turned pro in 1975. But what I have seen, because I did not go to college, as I mentioned earlier, and didn't have any uh, a college scholarship that really maybe I, I wanted to pursue, I was this little racehorse and I wanted to go play against the best women in the world. And I saw a sport really change from the time that I played in the seventies. Um, and as a young kid, as a young 18 year old, I saw how in a way, especially how global women's golf has become. Um, first, uh, Chaco Haguchi, who you might may not even know, was one of the greatest players. And she came and opened the floodgates for golf to be popularized in Japan. And it's a total golf crazy country. And as time changed, um, 
after the Japanese players took it on and men, men players, it became, um, you know, players from Sweden and players from Australia. And now in women's golf, uh, Korea is a golf crazy uh, country. But what I've seen is what produces this, I ask myself. And the opportunities that are now in women's sports, if you look at Arizona State, uh, University of Arizona, UCLA, USC, down the list, Furman, all these schools, um, their women's golf teams are totally uh, gals from all over the world, um, Thailand and, uh, and whatever. So I, I see whatever's gone on and the game in general being pop popularized, I see it is something that just uh, is very similar to what's going on in the world. The, the, the sport of golf has become more, so much more global. Um, and what's interesting is um, every year I'm, I look at the uh, magazine that comes out with the top 100 teachers, golf teachers in the United States. And there's maybe two or three that I know on, on the whole list of the top 100 golfers. Um, golf uh, has always notoriously been a, a kind of a male dominated sport that's really kind of changing. And it's changed a lot from its uh, male domination and the kind of elitist viewpoint that a lot of people have uh, in that realm. And I have to think, uh, I think golf became a lot more popular. If you, you can talk about somebody like Tiger Woods, he tigerized the sport in that by, by him just doing what he did. And there's similarities in Tiger and me. I grew up uh, without a golf course to play on. I grew up sneaking under fences. My front lawn was my golf course. I had to wait in line because they wouldn't let kids uh, who were 14 years old, play the public golf courses. I'd wait all day uh, to get on a course. Um, what Tiger did um, and in, in his, his whole thing is he opened golf up to the masses. And um, that's been a, a, a wonderful thing to see that, uh, um, that, that reaching out. And so um, I just see a sport, a sport that has become more global. And it's very indicative of what you see at college campuses now on both the men's and women's golf teams, not just on TV professional golf, but things have opened up a lot. And uh, just, just quickly, the dichotomy uh, of, of it all is that yeah, I'm so happy when I see uh, somebody in professional uh, baseball or professional football, a woman become a, a, a coach. I mean, I think that that's, that's a really big deal that when they, uh, that you should, that shouldn't be a big deal because I have always thought women are much better, te can be better teachers, especially in my sport. Can so, I jump in here? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, I want to say that golf has a really good, there are two ways to look at it. Um, 
uh, a good scam going, or you could say that they have a great business model to perpetuate male, male dominance. The scam part of it is that these golf clubs that charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for membership get paid for by companies on the premise that the executive men who go to the golf clubs and play golf are gonna do business deals while they're playing golf. Okay, so if you have a whole sports sector and industry that's being supported by corporate America, which by the way is dominated by men, um, yeah, that's a really great business model to perpetuate that. Um, meanwhile, we have the stereotypical um, role of women in society, it doesn't matter how good we are at something or how much we want to get into any kind of business space, whether it be sport or business, we still are doing the child rearing, the housekeeping. Um, I don't have any children, so I'm not doing it, but <laughs> I'm helping my sister. Same, same. But, um, you know, but you know, so so we've got to look at um, the whole societal structure, right? So it's amazing. The backstory to women's golf is amazing um, because these women took it upon themselves. Uh, Babe Zaharias, uh, I guess she had a business partner, her husband who had money, you know, and they toughed it out and they convinced uh, golf courses to let them use their golf courses. And over time they, but the business model for golf is like, like amazing, right? If get yeah. um, to, to pay for their executives to do pro-ams and, and to pay for your country. I wish somebody, I wish a corporation would pay for my gym membership, you know? <laughs> I know. Let's let's start doing some deals like uh in the spa so we can get all that. Well, you know what's beautiful yeah. about you know, there's a whole executive women's golf program now that they are really trying to promote around the country because there are more women playing golf and more corporate women understand that the deals are done on the golf course. And so if they can yeah. learn how to play golf, then, um, you know, and they have that opportunity to at least interact with guys and do the same kind of be in the same environment that that's helpful too. But, uh, that's a, that's a work in progress also. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love I, how we're tying this into the executive I, I, front. Um, okay. Sorry, Jill. I, I just want to keep, make sure we, oh, we yeah, uh, get, keep, keep moving. Um, so, cause, but I love what you're saying because there's that study that talks about how um, I'm looking for the exact numbers. I wish I had them in front of me. Victoria might know, but um, what a high percentage of women who are in the C-suites uh, played sports in high school or in college and how important sports is to leadership um, and is to greatness and why ultimately that's why this is worth fighting for. And, you know, equality in sports, like, yes, we want the pro leagues to do well. Yes, we want, you know, uh, the entertainment. Yes, we want all these things. But ultimately, it's those, you know, those um, other off court or off field or whatever, you know, benefits that sports provides that becomes available to women when women have access to the sports. 
Victoria, earlier you mentioned 96 and, you know, what a big event that was. I was uh, 10 years old, so I remember the 96 Olympics well and just watching it all. And it was one of many, you know, we've had many since then, the year of the woman, you know, in sports, you know, the year of women in sports. But that really, uh, you know, there, it, you know, we probably wouldn't have the WNBA without that, you know, uh, summer. I mean, it was just such a huge summer for women's sports. Um, and it was followed by a couple of other milestones, most notably and prominently the 99 World Cup, where you had the um, Team USA here win the Women's World Cup. Do you think that this might be a softball, but I want to make sure I'm really kind of tying this all back. Do you think that like those milestones would have come as quickly that we would have gotten there without title nine? Yeah, no, I, I think title nine kind of laid the groundwork because you know, the, the 96 and 99, U.S. hosted international championships were then both of them were then used as leverage to start women's professional team sport leagues in the U.S., which is like the point of most resistance, <laughs> women's professional team sports. Um, yeah, so 96 is then the launch of the WNBA in 97. And thanks to, you know, it's all, it's not that we're thanking men for doing these things, but if not for David Stern pushing this, I think that's another important piece there as well. And then using that 99 US hosted Women's World Cup to launch what was then the WUSA. And I started my freshman year at the University of North Carolina. And I know Lindsay, you're a huge Tar Heel. Um, and that was like the <laughs> inaugural season of the WUSA. And you know, I was on the track team and when the season started in the spring, there were like bleachers on our backstretch <laughs> because they had to add more seating because it was so popular that Chapel Hill had one of these teams. Um, and, you know, of course, Anson Dorrance and the legacy around women's soccer at UNC was the reason why we had a team in Chapel Hill, much like, you know, you see with UConn and, and Connecticut and women's basketball there. Yeah, but if not for Title IX, there's no way we would have gotten to where we were by the 90s. That said, <laughs> Title IX in a sports space really didn't start to kick in until the 90s because you know you have this law passed um, when Richard Nixon signs it into law in 1972 and people aren't thinking it's a sports law because it isn't, it's an education law. <laughs> and the, the cool part was that the people working in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare did know that this law would be applying to sport and they were getting to work, putting law into practice, building out those regulations to think about both the quantitative and the qualitative experience of equal opportunity. But then, you know, it's, it's not until the end of the seventies that schools dragging their feet are finally starting to realize they really need to be complying with this. And then we have Reagan in the eighties and this really important Supreme Court decision, Grove City College versus Bell in 1984. Yeah? What's that? Sorry. No, I just, so much could follow the phrase, and then Reagan in the 80s. So I'm just. <laughs> right. <I wasn't. laughs> well, because remember, Title IX is part of broader civil rights legislation. And if there's one thing we know about the Reagan administration, it's that they wanted to, to tear down civil rights laws. 
Title IX being one of them. And, you know, in that administration, they called Title IX the Lesbian Bill of Rights. There was a lot of animosity toward this law. And so you have this small school in Michigan that says, you know, we don't have any federal funds. We don't have to comply with this law because only schools that receive federal funds do. So they sue and it gets to the Supreme Court and you have people who are supposed to be defending this law who are appointed by the Reagan administration. So the court is relying mostly on amicus briefs from you know, the National Women's Law Center and others, um, the Women's Sports Foundation. And in what scholars, legal scholars call an example of judicial overreach, the Supreme Court says, you know what? Grove City College, you do receive federal monies, but you only do in the financial aid office. The rest of your campus doesn't have any federal monies touching it. So the rest of your campus does not need to comply with Title IX. Well, guess what? No athletic department in the country is receiving federal funds. So what this signaled to people all across the country, athletic departments that were really resistant to this anyway, they were told by this Supreme Court decision, you don't have to bother with complying with Title IX in sports anymore. And it's only by 8788 um, that the Civil Rights Restoration Act passed over Ronald Reagan's veto restores the law and other civil rights laws to their full and originally intended application, which is that if any federal monies touch your campus in any place, the whole institution must comply. Um, so it's at that point, you know, there's a recession in the late 80s. And the core business of athletic departments is football. So anytime there's an economic downturn, it's like, you know, the drawbridges coming up and everybody rushing into the castle and fortress, which is football, and just defending that core enterprise. And it's really only by the early 90s that we see schools finally starting to get on board with this and um, adding women's teams and providing comparable scholarship monies and improving facilities um, and all of those things as well. Thank you for the learned a lot actually <laughs> about Title IX. Jill, I'll go to you and you can answer a little bit of that question if you want about you know, how Title IX accelerated the growth of women's sports. But I also wanna make sure before we get to audience questions, so you can incorporate this if you want. In Victoria address this a little bit, but why aren't we further along too? <laughs> like, why is the pay in the WNBA still so low? Why are we still, you know, why is there still no completely sustainable, you know, we truly live off of, you know, why? In one hand, it seems like we've come so far, right? Since Pat Summit driving the van full of her players, you know, across the state of Tennessee and camping on the floor of gyms. Like we've obviously come such a far way, but we've still got a long way to go. <laughs> well, I mean, there are so many contributors to, to why um, Title IX hasn't catapulted women's sports at the professional level. Uh, I'm not sure, how should I put this? Uh, for men, 
um, it doesn't necessarily do that either, right? I mean, there are only a couple of sports that translate in a big way financially from the men's collegiate sports over to uh, professional sports. But at the end of the day, it goes back to something I, I said before, which is, um, uh, well, let me start by saying Title IX was awesome in expanding the number of female student athletes who participate in athletics, in any kind of athletics. And I was fortunate that all the schools that I attended in the UK and Canada and in the United States had women's sports. Uh, if not eventually um, in terms of Princeton, but, um, I was recently on a webinar panel uh, for Princeton Women Athletics celebrating exactly the same thing we're celebrating now, uh, almost 50 years of women's athletics at Princeton. And a woman um, in the audience said to me that, said to us that she's from Illinois and that there was in fact a law, a law in Illinois that prohibited girls from participating in sports in, in the school system at all, I, you know? So that just blew my mind. It made me really feel like, oh, I was really, really fortunate to go to schools in which I was able to participate. So hands down, there's no doubt that Title IX uh, expanded the opportunities for girls and, and young women to participate in sport. But you know, here's a reality. Not all girls and young women wanna participate in sport. Not all girls and young women uh, wanna be an Amy Alcon and go out and be a professional athlete. Um, uh, and the way society is structured, this goes back to me repeating what I said before, society is structured in America and in many other countries uh, whereby the, the opportunities for women as say coaches or professional athletes are limited. It is true, it is a truism that women don't support women's sports across the board, right? Um, part of the reason that women, I think, don't support other women's professional sports across the board is they have other responsibilities. Somebody has to be raising the kids and taking care of the household. And if you're also working on top of that, um, you know, it's, it's just very, very difficult. So uh, I think that um, society accepts that men play professional sports. And while it's nice that women get the opportunity to do it, other women don't support women playing professional sports to the same extent that men do. And part of that is tradition and just habit. Part of that is at the C-suite where women are not and decisions are being made where women aren't um, in in decision-making positions across the board, when decisions are made about sponsorship and, and all of that, um, you know, they're not looking at, at sponsoring more women's sports to help them develop. Uh, they're they're going to focus on, on, on the male sports. The last thing I want to say is that with NIL, name it, image, and likeness coming into collegiate sports um, now, there is an opportunity for brands, whether they are led by men or women, to make sure that women get their, women student athletes get their share, fair share of the NIL deals. Because women are, 
I think over 50% of the population in the United States, women, I've seen studies control spending in most households. So if you are a brand wanting to get the most bang from your for your buck out of um, student athletes able to promote on social media and in other realms your product, make deals with the women. Don't just make deals with the men. Well said. I knew I would do it once this time and not mute, <laughs> but uh, not unmute myself. But I, I want to circle back and kind of finish at, at name, image, and likeness because it's such a good point. And we've had a couple of reader questions about that. But first, I do want to push back a little bit on the women don't support women's sports narrative because I think, while yes, it's true, but women consume the same media and in infrastructure that men do. They're fed the same messages and they're constantly told that sports aren't for them, that they're not supposed to be watching sports and they're not consuming women's sports because women's sports isn't in the media. Um, so I think it's a little bit more complicated than women just not wanting to support women in sports. Um, you know, I think that they're, it, you know, it's all like we keep saying, it's all kind of interconnected. Um, but Amy, I guess I want to uh, make sure you have a chance to answer just kind of the question of, you know, uh, the, the positives and how Title IX did accelerate things as we've touched, but also where, what, are, what is the, as one reader put it, um, well, which uh, is great, the unfinished business of Title IX, like, like what's next? Why are we not further along? Well, I'd just like to talk one second about Jill's comments that were very, very yes. astute. Um, you know, women in general, and I've seen this across the board, do not support other women the way they should. Now, whether that's a fact that there has never been enough room at the top in the C-suite and down, even down on other ranks of, of hierarchy and business, um, um, women notoriously uh, are the protectors of the home and, and they, they want to protect their territory and their children and their place and where maybe with men, there's men are raised around sports. They interact with each other, you know, they'll call each other bad names and then you'll see them three days later going to lunch with each other. Um, uh, women don't do that. They tend to hold grudges. And, um, but, but I follow a lot of business now that I'm not on the tour. I, I love the world of business and finance. And, um, you know, I, I read a lot of articles and lately I've been reading, uh, you know, a few in particular about some you know, women who are in the C-suite, you know, uh, the woman that runs, I forgot her name, sorry, uh, the woman that runs Clorox, uh, played, uh, played basketball. Uh, there's a, another uh, CEO, a woman here in the Silicon Valley that runs a company called Pager Duty uh, that was a top uh, golfer, I think at Berkeley. Um, and all of these women, all the, these women are influenced by, um, uh, opportunities to play sports. They love sports. I think that it's, they go in tandem together. Women who are, uh, compete in sports, it, it shows directly uh, to what they go forward with and attain in their lives, whether it's, uh, whether they, uh, 
competitive spirit lies a little dormant in some some ways, but they they take that, especially this new generation of young women, um, take that forward. And um, I don't know that I'm answering your question, but it's really refreshing to see that that whole aspect of it. We were fortunate enough in the world of golf uh, when I was starting to play to have, and, and just watching sports in general, to see people uh, like, uh, you know, the Virgi uh, I know in tennis, obviously, Virginia Slims and the uh, Philip Morris and the Coleman family, I mean, supported uh, the whole starting with Billie Jean King and Chris Everett of, of women's professional tennis in the Virginia Slims League. And, and uh, in women's golf, we were so thankful to have a wonderful man who really in the 70s, uh, who ran Colgate Palmolive and really started the Colgate Dinosaur Golf Tournament. Uh, that was David Foster who yeah. put his soap money uh, soap and uh, toothpaste money behind women on, on multiple genres um, in uh, uh, whether it was skiing or tennis or golf. So it takes sometimes a sugar daddy like that. The, those kind of guys can't be forgotten. <laughs> but as far as Title IX goes, it's another well, generation of great. Yeah, I think it's so important to want to say. Yes. Yeah. It takes a village, you know, you need everyone, you need allies, um, absolutely. And I do want to say, you know, I've been lucky, maybe, maybe I've been lucky to have just such wonderful experiences with women being collaborative and not being catty, you know, and, and really helping lift each other up, especially, you know, someone who works in the sports business, which can be, be tough on women. So I don't think it's a, it's a uniform thing that all women are like that, but I, I, I certainly, uh, you know, we're certainly society, you know, it, different messages are, you know, given to us culturally that certainly influence things. Victoria, did you have anything you want to add? Yeah, you know, I am so optimistic about the young people that I work with in classrooms, and they see sport in a totally different way. Um, I, I have my Phoenix Mercury, oh, I pointed over the wrong shoulder, shoulder, my Phoenix Mercury foam finger, three fingers here. And, you know, this is like one of those teams that really, I think, exemplifies the excitement and energy around women's professional team sports, because it's the inclusive space. And there's excitement around that in young people right now. And, you know, the Mercury for, for years have had really good attendance rates and people watching on TV and that, you know, they might've been a little bit ahead of the curve, but now nationally, um, there is so much excitement and energy around women's team sports. And as far as like, um, you know, professional athletes coming together and, and working together on shared goals, like the WNBA just exemplifies that. Um, if you remember from about a year ago when sports stopped the second time when everyone was in bubbles, when Jacob Blake was shot in Wisconsin, I mean, you saw the teams that worked together the best, that the league where the athletes coordinated and communicated the best were the, you know, it was, it was the WNBA, this collective statement, this unified position and the immediacy and, and the rapidness in which the WNBA and its team leaders came together to have a unified voice. Um, you know, they've been the beacon and uh, I think Amira Rose Davis is who coined the blueprint, the WNBA is the blueprint 
um, for social justice activism and sport. Like, and that's why we're seeing so much more corporate investment in women's professional team sports now because they are so good and on point on this and have been for decades. Um, it's just that it's, it's in the spotlight more right now. So I am optimistic about the energy and excitement of young people around women's sports going forward for sure. I love that optimism. And I want to circle back to you building on what Jill had said earlier about this, you know, it looks like uh, it's inevitable that name, image, and likeness, you know, finally going to be struck down the NCAA, you know, um, I think I've never seen anyone, uh, you know, have to be dragged kicking and screaming uh, the way that the NCAA did into this change. But we're here. Um, it, you know, it after the Supreme Court decision this week, it looks like soon, uh, maybe as soon as July first, that athletes are going to be able to profit in some way off of their name, image, and likeness. Um, Victoria, I know you do a lot of work in this space of uh, ending amateurism in the NCAA. How do you, um, we had Jill talk about the, how brands should reach out to uh, women in sports. Uh, How do you think this is going to impact women's sports? Um, I I think the the policing and the anxieties around college sports are just going to ease. It's going to be like a big sigh of relief that we don't have to monitor and police students' economic rights anymore and restrict them. Because that's really what this is. It's restoring to students who play sports um, the economic rights of all students on a university campus. Um, and you know, because we have these rock star college women athletes like Sedona Prince at the University of Oregon and so many others um, who have just gigantic social media followings Again, another signal that there's so much energy and enthusiasm and incitement um, around women athletes and women's sports and people who play women's sports um, that, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there's been so much work on this, looking at the lists of the college athletes with the most um, social media followers. And that's certainly not a gauge of, you know, who's going to be making the most money off of name, image, and likeness, but it does speak to, to a popularity um, that, that isn't being monetized. Um, now, when I say that, what has me nervous is colleges intervening and trying to dictate and also share in um, you know, this newfound source of revenue. Um, so that has me a bit concerned, but um, I think just an easing of all of this and, and um, a realization that you know, the sky will not fall, <laughs> um, that athletes, should be able to, you know, if they're in a store and somebody offers a free sandwich because, you know, they're the official sandwich sponsor of the athletic department, that's not like, you know, a situation where the student has to give away their A card, this kind of false idea around amateurism, that it's something that's moral and pure. And once you lose it, you'll never get it back. It's just going to be such a relief once all of this we realized was just telling ourselves this story that that was all fabricated. Um, And once it goes away, I think we'll realize college sports are here to stay. People like to watch young people play sports. Um, There's energy and enthusiasm (laughs) around the brands of universities. None of that's going away. Absolutely. I think Title IX has been used as like a red herring, right, to fight against amateurism for for so long. Um, And, you know, I think that 
that that myth will be will be busted um, pretty quickly. It's not going to be the end of the world. Amy, I want to kind of uh, if you have any thoughts on that subject, please feel free. But I also want to ask you because I didn't get a chance yet specifically in the LPGA. Um, you know, we've seen the LPGA come so far since those founders and it's one of the longest lasting um, pro sports leagues or I guess league tour uh, in the uh, for women. But obviously the pay gap is so big. The exposure gap is still so big. How do you think the LPGA and, you know, women's golf, how do you think we can move forward um, move things forward. Do you feel like things are moving in the right direction? I think things are moving in the right direction, um, but it's slow. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> almost, it's been like a snail. Um, well, people have all kinds of different uh, viewpoints on uh, why women's, women's purses when a woman's playing for uh, uh, a total purse of what the... Uh, the first prize is going to be in a man's tournament. Uh, um, uh, but so much of that is dictated, obviously, by advertising, um, lots of different variables that are involved, uh, broadcast rights, uh, uh, advertising, visibility of, of men's professional golf versus women. Um, and what I've seen is more and more companies getting involved in the global in a, in, a, in a global way with women's golf. Obviously, uh, uh, the Asian market uh, is very, very big for women's golf. And uh, uh, they could, I, I believe our former commissioner or soon to be former commissioner or our former commissioner, Mike Wan said, you know, if, <laughs> a couple of years ago, if, if, he, if he could do an entire tour just in, uh, Thailand and China and uh, Malaysia and Korea, he could probably do it. The support for women's golf was so huge back there. It's, there's so many players that are playing, but it's a, it's a snail's pace. And, um, um, you know, I've seen, you know, uh, people tell me, you know, I used to have to look in the back pages of the sports section to see women's sports. My mother used to say that they'd list the top 10 names now that that uh, now it's a bona fide, its own bona fide, uh, you know, sports entity, the LPGA, and it's something to be very proud of. And the gals uh, really have to stand up for it, stand up for their rights, and um, you know, continue to. As Dinah Shore told me many years ago, after I won her tournament, pass along a legacy. Uh, it's, it's sad, but true. And she had to do that in the entertainment business that you not only have to sing better and act better and, and present yourself better, you're going to have to roll over and bite yourself to get the attention that any man would get. And so um, once you just kind of, uh, kind of understand that maybe that's just, it's always going to just kind of be like that, but not formally accept that, then um, you could just kind of move on and uh, promote your tour and be, and live your truth, you know, and um, that's what I see this new generation of young uh, women coming from all over the world to play on the LPGA. I'm, I'm, I uh, like uh, Victoria, I, I believe in the future. I definitely believe in the 
future of this young generation, that they can make it better. Absolutely. Gosh, this is, I love the optimism. I don't often uh, get to uh, moderate or be on panels that are very optimistic <laughs> on an optimistic note. So I love this, but Jill, I see you nodding along and I know, I know you worked with the LPGA on the legal side for a while. Um, I didn't know if you had any specific thoughts about, um, you know, golf and how we can maybe accelerate things a little bit on that end, or just about, you know, women's, um, women's sports in general, um, how to kind of accelerate the growth. Um, I think I'll answer the second question because um, um, I, I think really there are two separate conversations. Title IX is student athlete, high school, college, right? Professional sports is, are a whole different ball game, right? Um, yes, just like men's sports uh, in college and high school, the training ground that is provided in collegiate sports for those few, those very few who are gonna go on and play and earn a living professionally is outstanding. And the beauty of Title IX and the reason that Title IX um, was necessary uh, and needs to be strengthened and, and um, to its max is that what Title IX did is say, if you're going to give men athletic scholarships and opportunities to get their education, you have to give women those same opportunities, right? That's another part of what Title IX did, right? Grant and aid for, so that female student athletes could get educational opportunities. As the NCAA says, uh, the NCAA has a motto, most of our student athletes turn pro in something other than sports, right? So when I say women don't support professional sports, I'm not saying that women don't like, uh, don't participate, don't wanna participate in, um, student, in college sports, don't wanna support college sports, but by the time any student athlete, be they female or male, leaves college, their focus is different. And when you talk about the support of women's sports um, today, you need to be talking about the declining viewership of sports across the board. And if women wanna go pro in a sport, you should go pro in esports. That's where the money is, okay? That's where all the focus should be. Esports is where you should be. I tell people who come to me and say, I wanna be a sports lawyer, be an esports lawyer. That's where all the focus is. So there's a lot going on in society that distracts from the support of sports in general. Um, and the marketing cloud is with the men because they, are, they have the tradition of it, the money to support it. But look at what's happening on television right now. Olympic trials are happening. Golf, uh, major men's and women's golf tournaments are happening. Euro 2020 soccer is happening. The NHL is happening. Um, basketball is happening. I want to turn on the TV and you know what I want to see? I want to see track, Olympic track and field and I can't do it, right? Um, I, I turned on channel four over the weekend because NBC Olympic channel, I want to see track and field. No, it's a men's golf tournament, right? 
the men control the male sports control the media time and even on my cell phone when the nfl season i keep getting these pop-ups about nfl games i don't care about the pop-ups you know where are the pop-ups for the women's sport the control of all the marketing and the domination if women got that same amount of promotion and marketing we would have more eyes and on our sports as well. But there are just so many things conspiring at this point in time. And it doesn't mean that we can't be optimistic for the future, but we also have to be realistic, right? If, if women who are out of yeah. college and university would buy tickets and go to a WNBA again. I support tennis. I go to tennis, right? If they would go to a mm. golf tournament, you know, like we, it's, it's hard. There's so many things competing for your time. Absolutely. I want to very quickly, we need to wrap up, but there's one more audience question. And I, I'm actually curious about this. Um, Victoria, you might know the answer. Have any other countries enacted any similar legislation to Title IX, has that any uh, global domino effect? Um, or anyways, you, it, yeah, you're, you're shaking your head, which is what I thought, but no, uh, that hasn't been the case. The closest thing to that is American universities that set up in other countries and then influence the sports leagues or intercollegiate sports leagues around them. So I'm gonna shout out NYU Abu Dhabi um, and I think NYU is your alma mater, right, Lindsay? So again, it is, yes. Good job with your school affiliations um, and fandom. Yeah, so um, Peter Dici, who's amazing, um, is the athletic director, and his team is amazing too, the entire athletic department at NYU Abu Dhabi. Phenomenal. And they've been there for about a decade and slowly and um, respectfully have just created a culture of gender equity and intercollegiate athletics, um, not just at NYU Abu Dhabi, but for, you know, all of the colleges that compete in the intercollegiate league in Abu Dhabi, which is one of the United um, Arab Emirates. So there's lots of colleges. And um, I mean, it's proving results. There are women who are at more conservative universities that um, up until the very recent past um, would only compete behind closed doors and completely blocked off that are now competing in mixed gender track and field meets in the open at NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, and you know, I when we're thinking about power and girls and women um, giving them opportunities and tools for them to find their power, the first is education and the second is sport. And so I just love um, you know, this model, and it's happening in other places too, you know, there isn't a place that has a law like Title IX on the books. And again, it's this component of elite sport development in schools that we have in the U.S. that, that makes Title IX work in such interesting ways. Um, but yeah, what they've done in Abu Dhabi is a great example of how, you know, we can take our energies around gender equity with us and influence other places who then make it their own too. It's not this like American thing that's happening. Um, the commissioner of the intercollegiate league um, in Abu Dhabi is Emirati and she's running the show now. Um, and so that that's a huge piece of this too. That's great. Oh, I love learning about that. 
Well, listen, we have to close here, but uh, Victoria and Amy and Jill, it was an honor. I learned so much. Um, and thank you all for joining and listening to our conversation tonight. We, of course, want to thank the Zocalo Public Square and ASU Global Sport Institute for presenting this important conversation and to everyone in the audience for joining us on Title IX's anniversary. This video will stay public online and you'll also be able to find a summary of our talk plus interviews with myself and all the panelists on Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org. And if you're on the go, you can listen on Zocalo's podcast and subscribe to the newsletter for updates. Thank you all so much for this great conversation. And as you can see, the sun has gone on the East Coast. <laughs> I hope we've gone the day. So I should say, have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you.